Today's reading is from Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Sorry, that was my fault. (laughs) Go ahead and have a seat. Welcome, Redemption Pure. It's good to see you this morning. Hold on one second. Exercise the demon. There we go. I don't think it'll happen again. If it does, I'll grab the other microphone. Oh, jeez. Serious right now? Look at that. Something back here. Okay. This is good because I used to DJ back in the day. Just kidding. Okay. Can we start again? Good to see you all. Glad you're here. Uh, My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Peoria. Let me give you two things just to update you with, just as a family, if this is your church family, and then we'll jump in to our text this morning. The first is this. Um, I am one of the pastors. I'm not the lead pastor. I'm not the teaching pastor here at Redemption Peoria. So if you've been coming maybe for the last month or so, I've been up here teaching quite a bit. Um, Our lead pastor and teaching pastor, Sean, um, the reason is kind of twofold why he hasn't been up here as much. The first is... Uh, as he mentioned in April when he was getting ready to take a little break from preaching, um, we try and put our elders up front, preach, and preach every summer. And so I am one of those elders. You'll hear from Vincent Clark next week, who's another elder. You'll hear from Jim Ellis in a couple more weeks, who's another elder. So that's one of the reasons that he hasn't been up here as much. And the second reason is Sean finally graduated with his master's degree from seminary. So, yeah, you can clap it up. He... Um, He's been logging a lot of hours in the, 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 the last lap as he finishes, and so he now has his degree. He graduated last week with a degree in missional theology, and so he has his master's in that, and so that's some of the reason he hasn't been up here as much. He will be coming back very shortly. So wanted to make you aware of that. The other thing is I just wanted to say thank you to those that have been praying. Um, we met as elders the last two weeks where we locked ourselves in a room for a day long five elders and we prayed and we tried to listen to each other and listen to the Lord, the direction that he is taking us as a church. Um, and I know many of you were praying as we were in those meetings. And I just wanted to say thank you for praying. Um, coming out of those meetings, we felt like we got some really healthy clarity and some energy and excitement for where we're going to go as a church. And so we'll share that with you in the future. And so I just, again, wanted to say thank you um, for praying for us because we needed, we needed God to invade our space and direct our course. So he did that. Thank you for praying. With that, let's pray for our text that God would meet us here this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for your goodness to us, for your love for us. Thanks for this word that can encourage us this morning, as many of us need encouragement in our life, in our walk with you. I pray that you would supernaturally illuminate the text to our hearts, to our minds, by your spirit, God, and that you would change us, that you would change us. We trust that you'll do that. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we have been walking through the book of Ephesians, if you've been with us since January, and we are finishing chapter 3 today, uh, which is kind of nice because Ephesians breaks really into two halves. It has the first half, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and then the second half are 4, 5, and 6 as chapters. And so we are going to turn the corner next week and jump into chapter 4. And if you've been with us, you've noticed that Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, and he writes in uh, Ephesians chapter 1 about the beauty and identity of who we are in Jesus. 
And then in chapter 2, he talks about reconciliation. He talks about how we can be reconciled to God. And in verses 1 through 10, he talks about vertical or individual reconciliation, that my own soul can be made right with Jesus because of what he's done on the cross, that I was dead in my sins and trespasses, but now he's been made alive in Christ. But the gospel doesn't end there in its implications. It's not purely vertical. It's not purely individual. It also has horizontal implications. It has communal implications of how we love God is by loving other people. And so Paul unpacks that in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verses uh, 11 through 22. He talks about these two groups of people. They were the Jewish people, God's original people in the Old Testament, the Gentile people, and they were separated from sin. They were very different culturally in the way they thought about God. And God, through the cross, is now bringing these two people together. To blend people that don't look like each other for the glory of God and creating this new family called the church. So off the heels of that, he jumps into chapter 3, which we talked about, and he lays out in chapters 4, 5, and 6 some very, very practical, very tangible ways of loving people that don't look like you, that don't operate like you. And before he gets into it, he says, if you have any chance, you have any chance in doing this thing called the church, You need to be empowered by God's Spirit. And so he prays for him in chapter 3, and he starts verse 1. He's about to pray, and then he goes in this Holy Spirit side tangent, verses 2 all the way through 13, where he unpacks that this was a, a mystery, but it's now been revealed that these families are coming together, the Jew and the Gentile, to create the church. And Paul talks specifically about his role in that mystery, that he was called to preach to the Gentiles. We also talked about that his primary vehicle of glorifying God is this new community called the church. And then he jumps out of that tangent in verse 14, which we looked at last week, and he starts to pray for the church. that They would experience God's power in the midst of their new community. I'm going to read verses 14 through 21, just to give us some context of what we talked about last week, because what Paul will do here is in verses 14 and 15, he will give an introduction to his prayer, and then verses 16 through 19, he'll give the body of the prayer, and then what we're going to look at specifically today, verses 20 and 21, it's the closing or the benediction of his prayer. So if you have a Bible, please have it open to Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. This is what it says. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power in his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of God. Or Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We talked about this last week. Let me just remind you of Paul's progressive language in his prayer. That he understands, Paul understands, and anytime you go anywhere, you have to know your destination, right? You start with the end in mind. So the end in mind, what Paul is trying to pray for the church at the very end, we see it in verse 21. Look at your Bible. It's what? It's the glory of God. 
That is the end goal for Paul, that God would get glory in the church and in Christ. And specifically why he's praying this prayer for God to get glory, how God gets glory in the church and in Christ. Look at verse 19. When his people are filled with the fullness of God, God gets glory. Well, the way we're filled with the fullness of God is to know the love of Christ, verse 19. And we can't know the love of Christ unless Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, verse 17. And then Christ can't dwell in our hearts through faith unless we are empowered, powered through his spirit in our inner being, verse 16. It's progressive language that Paul is praying. And so again, the end goal is God's glory. But we talked a lot last week at sometimes we get blocked from the power that's available to us. We don't have access to it. And we talked about praying and obedience and community and how that can unlock the access of God's power to move in us through us for the glory of God. So look at your Bibles, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. I want you to notice, again, this is Paul's closing. So he's not adding anything to the body of the prayer, but he's kind of doubling down of what he means to say. And again, he is making a declaration about God in these two verses. It's a declaration. It's not a suggestion. It's a declaration. He's saying, if you are empowered by the Spirit, Christ will dwell in your hearts. As he dwells in your hearts, you'll know who God is. As you know who God is, you'll experience the fullness of him. As you experience the fullness of him as the church, God will get glory for generation to generation forever and ever. Amen. It's not this, maybe God can work it out this way. God is saying, listen, if you are obedient, if you let my spirit work in and through you, this will happen. It's a declaration. It's not a suggestion that Paul is giving in verse 20 and 21. And the word glory here, if the end goal is glory, man, what does that even mean? Right? My wife and I worked for a ministry with college and pro athletes for 16 years before coming on staff with Redemption recently. And athletes will typically, especially in a post-game interview, if they're Christians, they'll say, you know, all glory be to God, or I just want to give God glory. And they'll use that language. But then when you sit down and you talk with them and you interact with them, you say, what do you think that means to give God glory? And a lot of the times they couldn't articulate what it actually meant. It was just something that you would kind of say as a part of the culture. And a lot of times in our church culture, I think we use words that we don't really understand what they mean, but then we're kind of too afraid to ask, or, man, everybody kind of knows what it means to glorify God. And What does it mean to glorify God? Could you answer that question if we had an interaction today? And I asked you, what does it mean to glorify God? It's important for us to know if that's the end goal, right, that Paul is praying for his church. What does it look like to glorify God? This word glory in the original language in the Greek is doxa. It's where we get our word doxology. And it carries this weight with it, this magnificence and excellence and um, majesty, splendor and brightness and praise. It's weighty to it. And John Piper talked about how to define God's glory. And this was really, really helpful for me to kind of wrap my mind around why is it hard to define God's glory? Look at what he says. He says, defining the glory of God is impossible. 
Because it's more like the word beauty than the word basketball. If somebody says they have never heard of a basketball, they don't know what a basketball is, and they say, define basketball, that wouldn't be hard for you to do. You would use your hands, and you would say, well, it's this round thing made out of leather or rubber, about 10 or 9 inches in diameter, and you blow it up. You inflate it so it's pretty hard, and then you bounce it like this, and you can throw it to people, and they can run while you're bouncing it. And then there's a hoop at the end. It used to be an actual basket, and you try to throw the ball in the hoop, and that's why it's called basketball. And they would have a really good idea of what basketball is. But you can't do that with the word beauty. There are some words in our vocabulary which can communicate not because we can say them, but because we can see them. We point. If we point at enough things and see enough things together, and we say, that's, that's it. That's it. We might be able to have a common sense of beauty. But to try and put a word the word beauty into words, it would be very, very difficult. The same thing is true with the word glory. Piper goes on to talk about God's holiness, and it's connected to the word glory. That the holiness of God is a description of being in a class all by himself, his perfection and greatness and worth. And that perfection and greatness and worth are in such a distinct and separate category. We've been taught that what holy means is separate, that he is in a class by himself. His holiness is what he is by God's definition that nobody else is. It is his quality of perfection that can't be improved upon. It can't be imitated. That's what it means that God is holy. And in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, talks about the angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Do you know the next thing they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his his glory. If you'd never read the Bible, you would have thought he had said, holiness? (laughs) This whole world, holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with this. But he doesn't say holy, he says glory. And that's what glory is. It's the going public of God's holiness. It's the way he puts his holiness on display for people to understand. So the glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest. It's important for us to understand. Psalm 19 says that the heavens are telling the glory of God. Well, like, what does that mean? It means he's shouting at us. He's shouting with the clouds. He's shouting with the stars in the galaxy. He's shouting, I am glorious. Open up your eyes and experience me. And glory is always tangible. Again, it's hard for us to articulate it in words. It's hard for us to define it or explain it. But it's not hard for us to see it or recognize it. And in the Old Testament, God's glory dwelled in the temple. That's where it was felt and seen and understood, this house of where God's glory was exhibited. And in verse 17 of chapter 3, we talked about last week, Paul uses the same word. He uses the word dwell, but he talks about how Christ dwells in our hearts, and he's making the connection to where God's glory now resides because of the cross. Glory resides in you, resides in me. It's no longer in the temple, but it's actually going through the church. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that we can 
begin to be changed by the Spirit, and we can explain and expose God's glory for other people. It's tangible. You can see it. My wife played softball at the University of Arizona in college, and God radically grabbed her heart her freshman year of college, changed her forever. She continued to play softball, and her teammates could see something different in her. They couldn't explain it. They didn't understand it, but they could point to it. And they would have conversations like, why do you play the way you play? You play with such joy and selflessness. I don't understand it. Can you explain it to me? They're seeing the glory of God manifest through a person. And I remember after one game, there was a fan that was just watching my wife, which is kind of creepy. But he's just watching the way she's playing and her attitude and her countenance. And he comes up to her and says, why are you playing like that? Why do you have such joy in you? That's the glory displayed for other people to see. I hear stories like this all the time. Again, God's glory is not some big thing. Like It's tangible. Like We can feel it. We can see it. We can sense it. I hear stories all the time of how God is on the move in the midst of our communities with people and relationships. And the Ellis community that meets on Thursday nights, they meet every week together. And last week or two weeks ago, I think, they came together. And one of the members came to Jim, who's leading the community, and said, Hey, I've got this friend. And man, they're evicted from their place, and they're having a car issue. Is there any way we can do anything? Is there any way we can help them financially? Can we, is there anything we can do? And so Jim, being the man of like, this is what gospel means. This is how you display God's glory. Explain the needs to the group. And he got a pot from his kitchen and just put it in the middle of the ground. and said, hey, we're going to try and help these people. I know you don't know them, but if you feel led to give that we can help them, then, then that's great. He's retelling us the story a couple of weeks ago about it, and he's starting to get choked up. Because at the end of the day, everybody left. There's about 15 people in the group, and $200 sat in the pot. They were able to give that to those people to help them fix their car. That's what the glory of God looks like displayed, that you're thinking of the other, that you're living selflessly for the other person. The glory is the goal that we're after, that God's glory would be displayed in the church and in Christ. That's the goal that Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. And I love this language that he uses when he's talking about the glory in the church and in Christ. And he says, throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. I love that Paul adds that. He doesn't leave it off at the end. He could have just said, to him be the glory in the church in Christ, amen. But he doesn't. He says, throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. This helps give me the scope of the gospel. The scope of God's kingdom is way bigger than I think of. Because all the time, I'm usually just thinking of my own circumstances, my generation, what's happening now. And Paul says it actually is going to go on from generation to generation forever and ever. It is going to be good. Don't worry, folks. If people are saying, oh, the church is like God has got his church. He's going to take care of his people. It's generational. It has a kingdom scope to it. His, it's about his kingdom, not about our kingdom. And I need to be reminded of that perspective often. When I would sit with an athlete and disciple an athlete, when I'd sit down with them, whether they're a freshman or sophomore, and I'm not thinking of what 
their life is going to look like in the next six months. I'm not thinking of their next year athletically or whether they come to Jesus or know him. I'm sitting down and I'm trying to have this kingdom scope and I'm thinking of their grandchildren. I'm thinking as I share the gospel and God's spirit moves and they change their life as they submit to Christ, they're going to walk differently forever. They're going to meet somebody. If they marry somebody, it's going to be somebody that walks with Jesus forever. Their kids are going to walk with Jesus. They're going to raise them to live in accordance to God's word. It's bigger. It's bigger than just your own perspective. We get tripped up in thinking that often because we have a narrow view of the kingdom. There was a story about this little boy years ago that heard a parade going on in his town. He wanted to see the parade, but he didn't have enough money. He couldn't get in, but there was a fence, a a wooden fence right in front of the parade near his house. And so he could walk up to that wooden fence. He couldn't climb over it, but there was a knothole just big enough for him to peer inside and see the parade passing by. But he could only see from this perspective. This is all he saw of the parade. So a lot of times it didn't make sense to him. It didn't understand what's happening. Why You kind of get a taste of it, but you don't get a full view of what's happening. And we're like the little boy a lot of times in our life. We look at our current circumstances and we can't make sense of them. They don't make any sense. We don't understand what's happening. God sees the beginning of the parade, the end of the parade. He knows exactly everything that's going on from generation to generation forever and ever. Do you have a kingdom perspective of your life? Look back down at your Bibles in verse 20 as we back up to verse 20. We just looked at verse 21. Verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work in us. This one's hard for me, man. If I'm just super honest, um, because I get stuck. Like, again, God is doubling down. Paul's not offering anything new in his prayer. We already saw this in in the previous part of the the prayer, but he's saying, listen, this is going to happen. And for me, the idea of God being able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, I just look and I just, is that really true? Is that really true in my own life? And a lot of times I'm getting stopped up from experiencing this power, understanding God doing this for a couple of different reasons. The first reason is the asking. It's talking about God's able to do far more abundantly than we all or ask or think. And a lot of the times I've just stopped asking. I've, I'm, I've stopped asking God for things. And I think that's based on some unbelief. Is he really able to do what I'm asking him to do? And the text says clearly, he is able to do far more than you ask. So that doesn't seem to be the issue. So what's the issue? Why have I stopped asking God to do things, to show up in my life in certain ways? A lot of the times I think it has to do with fear. It's a self-protection. And sometimes my wife and kids will watch America's Funniest Home Videos. You ever watch that show? That, I mean, you got to kind of mute the commentary because it's terrible. It's super cheesy. But we always end up watching it. And we always laugh. And I remember watching it at one point, and it was this scene like, you know, you know the drill if you've seen the show, right? Like some dad's going to get hit and get hurt and or some type of dog or cat. It's really funny. Well, this one, it was a playground. And there were these two toddlers on the top of the playground, uh, um, a little girl and a little boy. I think the little girl was probably older. She's at the front of 
the edge of the playground. She's standing right at the edge, and she's got her dad down here, and he's got his hands up wide. He said, come on, jump, jump. And she jumps, and her smile is huge, and, he's, it's really, and he grabs her, and he kind of puts her down like this. And as he's putting her down like this, her younger brother steps up to the edge of the platform, and he jumps. And the dad is, like, just putting her down here, and he just, he just flattens like a pancake. And a lot of the times I feel like that, that brother in my relationship with God. Honestly, I say, man, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to ask him for these certain things. And I'll jump and I feel like he's turned his back and he's doing other things and he can't handle what I'm asking him. And that's just not true. But what happens is I start to believe that lie. And so the next time I climb up to the top of the edge of the playground and I'm Calling to ask God something, I just, I just don't do it. I just back up because if I don't ask, then he doesn't say no. It's kind of a safe play. And Paul is saying, would you ask? He's going to do more than you can even ask. Keep jumping. Keep jumping because God is not going to drop you. Some of the problem, again, with my asking and having the perception that God has somehow let me hit the ground in that illustration is that he doesn't answer what I want him to answer. Right? I'm praying for my kingdom versus his kingdom a lot of times when I'm asking him for things. I mean, think about that. Really evaluate your prayer life. If you're a praying type of person, what does that look like for you? How often do you pray for things that are directly related to your benefits? Or are you praying that God's kingdom would come? Are you praying for other people? Are you praying for things that are hard? I was in a meeting a couple weeks ago, and I prayed for patience. Never pray for patience, man. You're just asking for it every time. But I felt like God saying, look, you need patience. Pray for patience. I was like, I don't want to pray for that one because I know what it means. And oftentimes I don't ask because of fear or unbelief. And I need to keep asking. I need to keep asking. I need to keep praying. What's that one person you're praying that God would... Open their eyes, and you've just stopped praying after one year, two years. Yes, I'm not going to pray that anymore. God's saying, keep praying. Keep asking, and wait and see what I do. The other part that gets me stuck in this verse, not only the asking, but the, the thinking. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Some translations uh, define it as imagine. This word think in the original language, it carries with it this perception of the mind or to understand something. So you could read it as him who is able to do far more than we could ask or understand according to the power at work within us. And for me, that's just really, really true because God doesn't do things the way I would do them, which is really good. He does things that I don't even understand that don't even make sense in my circumstances. God, it seems like we should go here. And he's going, I'm like, God, no, I think, I think this is pretty clear. I think this makes the most sense. And he's going, no. And I'm going, God, and he's going this way. Because I don't understand him. I don't understand his mind. I don't understand how it works. And we see this time and time and time again in the pages of the Bible. You remember a couple of years ago, we were studying the book of Judges. And Judges chapter 7, the story of Gideon. This man that God uses, and he calls him to fight these people, the Midianites. Gideon has his army. He's got 32,000 soldiers ready to fight. God has this dialogue with Gideon and says, listen, that's 
That's way too many people. That's way too many people because if you guys win the war, people could look at you and say, well, that's why they won the war. It didn't have anything to do with God. It had to do with that many soldiers they had. So God tells Gideon, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to those 32,000 men, and I want you to say, whoever wants to go home, you can go home. If you don't want to be here, you don't have to be here. Go home. Gideon does that. 22,000 men leave. 22,000 men leave. So he's left with 10,000. He's got to be thinking, okay, that's, that's not good, but I'll, I'll deal with it. Okay, God. God comes back, and he says, no, 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 no. Still too many. Still too many men. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to send them all down to the river. I want you to send them all down to the river, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to watch the way they drink the water. And some of them drank with just putting it straight, and they're putting their mouth into the water, and they drank that way. And so he said, put those people on this side, and the people that take their hands, and they make a cup, and they put it up to their mouth, and they drink that way. I want you to put them on that side. Only 300 men cupped the water, and so they're over here. And so Gideon's got to be like, okay, I only lost 300. Okay. I can deal with that. I've got all these other soldiers. And God says, actually, these guys are the ones that are going to leave. You're going to fight the battle with 300 people. And God gives them the victory. And I'm thinking if I'm mine, if I'm getting like, God, this doesn't make any sense. We're not going to do this. this I'm not going to. How many times in your circumstances have you felt like, God, this doesn't make sense? And the Spirit is saying, no, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do. And you're kind of ignoring it. And you're kind of going, no, 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 God, this doesn't make any sense. I'm going to go this way. And he's saying, no, continue to follow me more than you can ask or understand or think. God is at work in ways we do not understand. And Jesus is the ultimate example of this. The Old Testament people, the Jewish people, expect this Messiah to come. They believe a Messiah will come. But they think he's going to come and he's going to reign and he's going to rule. He's going to overthrow the Roman government. And that's not how God does it. He sends Jesus to die a death. That doesn't make any sense at all. But that's how God works and that's how he gets the glory. It's a way that we could never have thought up, but it's beautiful and it's right. And there's things in your life that you need to continue to embrace because God has a plan for you. I love the way he ends this. And even before we get there, like, I think it's really, really helpful for us to remember the context of this passage. Okay, we've talked about... Um, these two people groups kind of coming together and forming this new, pa- um, this new family called the church and unity. And a lot of times we read that verse, verse 20. I know growing up in the church in America, we read that and we put our American filter on the text. Don't we? So we read it and we say, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. And we automatically think, we automatically think because of our consumeristic culture, material stuff. Right? Like I'm praying, I've been in an apartment and I'm praying for a two-bedroom house and God, if you would just give me a two-bedroom house, life would be perfect and God gives you a four-bedroom house. It's more than you could ask or think. And that's the depths of our relationship and our prayer relationship with God. It's about stuff and comfort. But look at the context of the passage. It's not about that. That's not what Paul's talking about. It doesn't make sense. God, how are you gonna use somebody to spread the gospel to Europe and all over if he's in prison? He can't even get out. The context of this passage has nothing to do with material things. 
Look at what the context of the passage is as we've been talking about it time and time again. The, cost, the context of this prayer is that the gospel would reconcile broken relationships together. It's bigger than material things. That God would do such a work that you can't even imagine that relationship being fixed. And he says, ask and watch and see what happens. I want you to do this. I want you to think of one person. I want you to think of one person you have major relational conflict with. Maybe somebody that you felt like has betrayed you. Maybe somebody that you feel like has said one thing and done something different. Maybe somebody that's left you. Think of that one person that's really hard for you to be around. That you would, and maybe it's somebody that just annoys you. You just don't even like them. These two are looking at each other over here. It's, it's you. Okay. Think of that person. Do you have that person in your mind? I've got my person in my mind right now. You have that person in your mind? Now imagine tomorrow, you have to be best friends with that person. You have to make all your decisions with that person and walking together in unity. You have to make decisions together with that person. Can you imagine that? I hope you can't. I can't imagine it with my person. And that's exactly what Paul's saying in the text. It's deeply relational. That is the context of what his prayer is, that God would change you and they would change that person and that there would be reconciliation between you and that person because to love God is to love other people. And so that person in your mind, if you're thinking, well, at least I don't talk bad about him. I don't talk, I'm kind of at an even. And God is saying, actually, I want you to move towards them. And we're going to see men and women put your seatbelt on because when we get into chapter 4, he's going to give us practical things to do with those people that are in your head. And it's going to mess you up. It will. But that's the beauty of the gospel. That's where God gets glory in bringing broken things together again, making them whole. And you're thinking, there's no way. There's no way I could do that with that person. And God is saying here through Paul, he's saying, yes, you can. Watch what I do in and through you as you are changed from the inside out. He ends this prayer and he ends the first half of his letter again as we transition into chapter 4 next week with his one word and this period. And it's the word amen. And again, I think it's one of these other words like glory that we've been around. If you've been around church or whatever, you've said amen and you don't, you don't have a clue what it means. The word amen literally means so it is, or so it may be, or may it be fulfilled, or I agree. That's what the word amen means when you say amen at the end of a prayer. And it was custom, it was passed down from the Jewish synagogues to the Christian assemblies, that when somebody read or prayed or offered up something to God or read the scriptures and others responded amen, they were taking it as their own. So that is the hope for us as we look at all the beauty that, that God unfolds through Paul in chapters 1, chapters 2, and chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians. That this goodness and this God wants to reconcile our broken relationships. And he does it in and through us as he changes us from the inside out. May it be so. May it be so. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the beauty of the gospel. Things that don't make sense to us in the midst of our broken relationships, you come and repair through your work on the cross. 
And we need a reminder of that this morning, Lord, that there are people that we have a tough time with that you are calling us to love just as you has loved us and you went to the cross for us intentionally. I pray, God, that we wouldn't ignore that, that as your spirit moves in and through us in the midst of conflict with other people, you would change us so that we can interact differently, so that your glory would be made manifest in the world. We need your spirit to empower us to do that. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.